0: Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows, and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. The Tim Hill Podcasts
1: ordinary people's extraordinary stories.
0: Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to have a chat with Jonathan. Jonathan's going to tell us all about his life. So, Jonathan, if you can tell me when. And where you were born and if you could describe what it was like where you grew up the schools you went to and the education that you received so you're on board
1: hi How tim thanks for having me here
0: you're welcome
1: so uh, let's uh,
0: I... let's get into it
1: okay all right start at the beginning right so Absolutely. i was born in 1966 and now it uh, seems like a long time ago, because every time you have to put your birth date in, right, you scroll and you scroll on the websites. It's like, oh, my goodness, yeah. this is a long time ago.
0: And well, there's two things there. 1966, for some reason, England won the World Cup. And talking about scrolling through, I mean, I was born on the 5th of the 4th, 1758. So you've got to go all the way back to 1758 before you get to... I mean, it's a lot more scrolling. People don't believe me when I say I'm 264. (laughs) You seem so young. (laughs) I know. I don't look alike. day over 263.
1: (laughs) So I was uh, born in uh, 1966, and my parents... Uh, my my father was born in Michigan, the state of Michigan, and my mother in the state of California. And what is unusual about that is that they were both, um, when I was born, I don't know. My dad was very early twenties, um, so was my mom. So they were they were they got married young. They got met each other in college. But what was uh, unusual about their particular case is they both wanted to become Christian missionaries. Uh, overseas and originally as they tell me they were planning on going to Africa and last minute with the uh, Christian organizations they were with because of one of the many civil wars that they have in that part that part of the world, they got redirected last minute to France and this <laughs> was in 1966 and uh, they wound up there and they, they lived in the Paris area for years, uh, were in the French Protestant Church, and they found uh, a new, a new love for the for a new people group, uh, a new identity, and so these are young Americans in the in the 1960s. And now that I'm older, uh, you know, when you look back on some of the things, like, oh my goodness, they were young, and uh, I saw some of the pictures when I was just a baby, and and the area around there just looked. Uh, it's not like today, where it's uh, there's a lot of tourism. Back in those days, there were hardly no Americans, mm. uh, especially later on when they went from Paris to southern France. And that part, it looked like a third world country, to be honest. Uh, my parents were like, That's yeah, cool. there was no... Um,
0: uh, that was probably why they needed think... missionaries there. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> but you could still tell the effect of uh, post-World War II. And Mm. uh, people didn't normally, like compared to the United States at that point in time, people had refrigerators, they had telephones, they had all the modern amenities. And you can see that in the sitcoms, in the old sitcoms. And in France, those things were pretty rare. In fact, uh, when I was uh, still in my teens, I still remember villages and areas where uh, by modern standards are still very primitive. A lot of that's Mm. changed now. So I not, I
0: not much of it has, actually you, you still <laughs> what, go through some of the villages in France and they still look yeah. as though they're in the early nineteen hundreds. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, now there's some there's some of that fake uh, uh, fake look where there's so many tourists coming in now that the southern France looks more southern France than it really did, and yeah. and I think it's like that all around the world. Switzerland looks more like Switzerland than it really did. It's mainly a, a drive by the tourists to, to demand, you know, now I think in the old villages where I grew up, I, when I go back now and it's all these cute lampposts and stuff. And I'm like, none of this stuff existed. In, it's a, it's a, it, those villages <laughs> never looked like that. They look awesome right now. I mean, everything's manicured, yeah. but the people were too poor back then to have that. So it's a, so it's, it's a little bit of a projection when you go back in time in some of these places and, yeah. uh, and it wasn't as pretty and as nice as people make it out to be, uh, but of course, uh, when it's the place you grow up in, there's a lot of love and charm for for the culture and the people because you're enmeshed in it. But just the yeah. outward external view of it, a lot of times I smile. It's like, <laughs> no, it didn't. It didn't really look like that.
0: <laughs> so, so you kind of grew up in France, then?
1: I grew up in France. And I went through the French public school system. So as far as the average person was concerned, I was a French. Uh they had no idea that I that I actually wasn't American. My parents were American. So the only place I spoke English was in the home with my parents. We didn't even knew we didn't even have other American people around us. We had the occasional British, odd British person in a village in France, which has been a staple for, I don't know, centuries but even then that was pretty rare back then now when i go back i i bump into english-speaking people all the time mm. if i go back and visit but back in those days it was just me and my parents and um so i had uh
0: so that's that's or, kind of interesting if, if if you were speaking english at home uh, and then having to go to school you have to speak french all the time yeah so how how did you learn the french in the first place
1: well, when my parents and went two, over. I was two years old, so I just I just grew up speaking it. I was bilingual from the get go, so I guess I I learned mm-hmm. it at the same time, and so my English was something I I had in the home, and my father had a huge personal library, so I kind of had a dual um, a dual education. Just where I just enjoyed reading uh, from my father's personal library, but the rest of my life was conducted in in French, and. So even living in France, you're always and, and you hear this obviously from many of the people who grow in other cultures. You yeah. really are always seeing things from a sort of a, um, a blinker. yeah, just two different yeah. perspectives all the time. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, that's fascinating. Then, so what was the first school you went to like?
1: I the the earliest memories I have were in a French. Public school in the Paris area, and I still have I still remember, and this is one of the things I liked about France, especially when I look back. They're very they they like to things to be very orderly in their educational system. Sometimes, um, at least in those days, to the point of being uh, uh, too rigid. But I do remember them taking great pride in neat handwriting and. Uh, journals that are very well-kept. And so there's a certain amount of pleasure that you pick up in learning things because it's, it's a slow pace as compared to now where I live now in the United States comparing other people's educational experiences here in the United States. There's a great emphasis on having uh, always feeling happy and having fun. So when you do educational stuff, it's, it's much more of a, um, you don't sit in it you don't you don't take yeah. down take the pleasure of just learning holding a book in your hands, whereas in France, I do remember having that pleasure where they they let you sit and read and write and mm. uh, in, in the general sense of um, the way they do things and so those are some of those things that i've I've taken with me uh, throughout my life and have been able to share some of that with my own children
0: mm. So, I'm not quite sure what the the school system is in France. So you, you've obviously gone through sort of maybe kindergarten and and then sort of. Junior yeah, and grade. I went all the way. I
1: went through the whole educational system in the public schools. Uh, what they also have a, a a pretty strong private school system in France. It's very different than it is in the United States. Um, I'm I ha- I'm not exactly sure how it works in England. Uh Germany I know is very different than france so i've i've I don't know of other how that works in the other countries though the 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 French public school system is a very bureaucratic minded school way more than um than the United States is mm. and so what their goal is they have these bizarre uh, we consider bizarre from the outside they just think it's normal, but their goal is to only graduate. A minimum number of students possible from high school, which is the complete opposite goal in the United States. They want everybody yeah. to graduate. <laughs> so even if you can't read, you can't do anything, you're still going to get your diploma and out out your door. In uh, France, it's the reverse. Actually, they they it's a it's a um, screening system, so it's a very much of an elitist uh, mentality, and so they only want, let's say, the top fifty percent. I don't know what the numbers are, but around that mm. number. To go on to a university education and so forth, because part of the problem is they they have so many uh, prop social promises they make to the people that they can't deliver on. So one way to solve that problem is to fail people. <laughs> so they're very much into they're very they're very uh, failure minded people. So they expect you to fail. And what happens in order to counter that is, I remember being a young teen is that your friends will say, hey, are you going to be there next year in, in such and such a grade? And it's like, no, my parents have decided to flunk me. This is, an interesting <laughs> concept. this is unheard of here. You flunk your children because if you go too far down the educational path, you can't come back. You can't go in and out. Let's say let's say in the 11th grade, you say, you know what? I have a real love for math. I really want to go down that road. Well, too bad. You should have made that decision three years ago. You can't get back into these very rigid mm. educational tracks, which again is a mm. very different concept. So the parents would do is uh, work it with the teacher to get to flunk. And I, st- I mean, looking back on it, I'm not, when you're a child, you don't really process that. Yeah. I don't know how those conversations <laughs> work, but it happened all the time. So they would, the private, that's what the mo- main goal of the private schools were, is you would have these private schools dotted all over the landscape, and some would specialize in science, some would specialize in math. So these were attended or, or literary or um, emphasis- And what they would basically do is they would double down on the tutoring and so forth, and the parents would pay out of pocket uh, uh, with a combination of um, state scholarships. And then when they would get back up to that proficiency level for the particular educational track, they would come (laughs) back into the public. school. So you have this going in and out, and uh, this does not exist in the United States. Even as I'm telling you this out loud, Uh, it's it's hard for people to compute. But over there in that. Culture, that's how they work things. So, I mean,
0: so, so there is some justification in what uh, the English tend to call the the French, then.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) They're they're, very, and surrender monkeys.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, uh, um, they do take pride in uh, some of their scholarship, but there's a, there's a bizarre uh, marriage with bureaucracy so mm. you get you get so so even if you were let's say very good you know visibly objectively by any standard you were very very good independently if you're not inside these very rigid bureaucratic paths uh it's very hard for you to get back in mm. um And, or even out for that matter, I mean, you can always fail by getting out, but it's not, it's not an easy, Where here, uh, the mentality is everyone can go forward sometimes to an exaggerated, uh, um, uh, an exaggerated attitude, but still, you know, if later on in life, you say, hey, I I think I really want to get into this, as as long as you can objectively prove that you have the stamina and the proficiency, you can more or less get back in, there's always a way, there's no stigma, whereas Mm -hmm. over there, uh, starting uh, probably um, around age 14 or maybe even earlier than that, you are really starting to be pegged uh, along certain tracks. Hmm. And so that that's something I have had very intimate knowledge with that did not affect me. And uh, because at the end of the day, um, and I process this now as an adult, I was still an American. So at some point in time, this wasn't really discussed Uh, in in the household but the implication is was that at some point in time i would come back to the united states at which point all that all those tracks and and Mm. uh, grades and certifications mean absolutely nothing once you go into another culture they just stare at you blankly so that is something that you learn and this will come later on our conversation is that a lot of times what you think is so important um just isn't isn't at the end of the day, because once you go into another culture, you realize yeah. you, you can't even argue with it because it doesn't even, they have no way to even wrap their minds around it. So you're just mm. like, Oh, I guess it really wasn't all that important after all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it kind of explains quite a lot about the, the French psyche in why the French tend to be so militant um when it comes to demonstrating and, and, They'll they'll go out on strike at a drop of a hat. Yes. Um, and protest. They, they, I mean, they're, they're world renowned for protesting. Um, they
1: yeah, and they they and that's part of their um, the the way they make change in general. And they will tell you that they they are self aware enough, uh, especially if they've traveled, that they will they will admit that it's a, it's a kind of unique French way. Of dealing with change, they come up with the most ludicrous uh, laws and uh, bureaucracies, and and they will vote for it. But if you get each individual person, you'll you'll find it. Whereas here in, in the United States, people tend to be very militant in their beliefs. Like, clearly, mm-hmm. but they tend to be consistent. So, in other words, if uh, they they vote for something, then they're they believe in it, right or wrong. Uh, yeah. they actually believe it. Whereas in France, you have <laughs> a lot of times people will tell you they voted for something, but they don't really, they'll tell you, but I don't really believe in it. So you're like, what, huh? This is very hard to compute. And uh, in their mind, uh, and uh, it is a very Latin attitude. They always, when they're, they, they say, but we're not as bad as, and they usually, they will point to the Italians yeah. or the Spanish, the Corsicans, <laughs> they're worse. So they'll have all these laws. I mean, they have, it's the... Um, the proverbial uh, one-way street sign, right? They'll come up with all the one-way street signs that are all aboard on this in the village. But then each one of them will enthusiastically break the very law that they're all excited about. Yeah. Uh, So, (laughs) in in fact, here's a funny story. When I go back, they have uh, roundabouts, what we call roundabouts, or in French, they call them round points. And the French will laugh because I remember as a child, how stressful it was to go through these uh, intersections because the French get very aggressive in their driving, not everyone, but a significant portion of them. And they will tell you they do. So that, yeah. I'm not, I'm not criticizing them in a way they wouldn't. <laughs> they finally came up, at, uh, especially in the village with these roundabouts, because now everyone's a winner. No one has to slow down. Right. So you go in mm-hmm. there and they go around and round. And I don't know if statistically it has solved the problem, but they would tell you that there are fewer accidents because they'll tell you with a big grin that the French meaning themselves can't abide uh <laughs> red lights green lights uh they know it should be, but they have they have them in abundance they yeah. just don't like to
0: they just don't so, just don't use them
1: they just <laughs> don't so now they have roundabouts, which is a kind of annoying now because it does slow you down so every little village, every obscure yeah. area has these roundabouts uh and I will say. It, it uh and i haven't been back very often sent um in the last few years but i will say it is less stressful driving because when you get to these intersections you instinctively you you start tensing up and you start looking because <laughs> on the other eye on the other side as long as you the game is if you don't make eye contact you go for it, right <laughs> and i i grew up in villages so it could be that in the big cities it's not as bad but definitely yeah. where i grew up that was very much uh Uh, Anything that is uh, government regulated or rules, they love making them, which is interesting. Yeah, they love them. They've got an agency for everything, but they also just as much
0: love not to break them.
1: (laughs) Would love to break them.
0: (laughs) So let's let's have a little bit of a look at some of the subjects you did in school, because I'm I'm quite interested in in history and how it's taught, uh, and particularly. French history and how they teach that oh, yeah. because because they they had a little rut a while back um, where they turfed out the the the, um, the gentry and, and they had yep. the thing called a guillotine and cut off their heads and bits and pieces like that and became a republic. Now they probably kind of regret that when they see how great we have a queen. Um, so they've got the revolution, then they've got what happened in the First and Second World Wars. How was that taught in France?
1: Well, you know, it's, we, I, I guess I didn't finish the thought, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll finish the previous thought we had, because this is going to tie in directly to it. When they do change over there, they 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 tend to once they go down a particular road they don't take a they don't take advice they don't take public advice very well uh and in that sense it's very elite what we call it elitist and so things will 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 at some point come to a boil where everybody is mad including even people inside the bureaucracy but they can't get off they 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 have it built with their customs and their laws where it just explodes, whereas some countries tend to have much more of a consensus-oriented building where, yes, they 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 have the laws and so forth, but you get this gradual nibbling at the sides. Like, you know, uh, in the U.S., uh, uh, people don't always like the speed limit laws, and they've been gradually raised, but it's also well-known that in the bigger cities, people tend to go ten, to at least 10 miles over the speed limit, and mm-hmm. the police officers don't enforce it. So that, that's what I would call that gradual... Uh, pushing against the boundaries, and you know, the, between the police officers and the judges, as long as you don't go beyond, it's, it's kind of this. Um, um and then I eventually the laws role. get changed. Yeah. yeah. Whereas in France, it tends to be very rigid. Uh, yeah. and so and so when they want change, it has to come to some kind of like overturning the buses and burning, and then they make this huge dramatic change. But they're so used <laughs> to thinking like that. Um, and I think like with the French Revolution the way it's typically taught uh when there are no foreigners around and there and the way they teach it officially at least that i remember uh in history class and just the way people look at it i i think looking back on it they feel uh they feel guilty about the bloodshed uh mm. that happened but at the same time, they they're, they also feel like the age of kings had to come to an end, and so they their in their general mindset, especially in the villages, you know, at least in our country, United States, this doesn't exist. But there's history everywhere. There's a building. the The new bridge is actually, is actually built like 600 years ago. It's still called the new bridge. Yeah, and so everybody's aware in one shape or another and the institutions have some kind of tie to the past so they're always much more aware of the past and i i think that in their mind the general consensus was is that the the nobility uh the legal system not just they don't they're not really mad about the nobility but their i think their sense was that everything was corrupt like you could buy everything off mm. um nothing was stable uh and they particularly s- viewed their nobility as as uh sort of what we'd call you know in the news you have all these celebrities right when they make it big then and then eventually all their personal life sorted life stories come out they're just yeah. you know okay. <laughs> all right they're on drugs they're on this they're on that they're under the fifth wife and that's how they viewed their nobility they they viewed them as kind of the uh, mm. um like the end like the end of a of a of an age where all it seemed like uh, in my area the Marquis de Sade you know who's now the Marquis de his,
0: Sade yeah, yeah.
1: It, it's a typical example is castle still there in the area but everybody that, that's the kind of that's how they viewed that these people had so much money that they were just into sadomasochistic stuff they were into just weird stuff Mm-hmm. And uh and the French in general kind of would would tend to believe that because I think there is some of that stuff going on, and so they see it as the culture exploded uh with not um instead of having a gradual uh, change, it that you know the guillotine in their yeah. mind was the answer, and yeah. um, so I, I think that's how they see change. Uh they don't want change that way, but that's how they feel changes. Is- change happens i guess uh they feel a lot of guilt it's like they, they shouldn't have killed so many people and they're and uh, yeah um so they view it as as uh, some kind of necessary chaos that they had to go through um to get to where they are maybe mm-hmm. that's the best way to put that so um yeah
0: yeah, so it's a different way of looking at history to the way that we have it over here.
1: Yeah, they, sure. they just uh, um, whereas, in as far as the in the United States is concerned, when we talk about our history, uh, there's definitely much more of a sense of continuity. Uh, there's change, but there's not this hard break in people's minds. It's more of a mm. um, there, there's a continuity whereas in france i think things are seen as they they see the past they see the history but in their mind the continuity happens when somebody gets their head chopped off and then at that point yeah. you have a new start whereas usually in the united at least in the united states there's this sort of gradual um mm. tension and so forth and then eventually there's a change but it's not it's not an outright revo- a true revolution
0: yeah so moving on then so you, you kind of got to the end of school there then uh, did you then I went to it? boarding
1: school my parents thought it was time for me to become more Americanized to eventually be able to come back into an English speaking world uh, which was a good idea actually and they sent me to a boarding school that was explicitly uh, overtly Christian in its um, in its ethics and teaching and this was in German near Switzerland
0: all right.
1: and uh i did the last three years of high school there which was a fantastic experience for me I had a very good education met lots of and made lots of friends with other americans and canadians and other english speakers from different countries uh whose parents uh were typically living in in some kind in a, in a country other than than their yeah. own and so that was the commonality among other things and it was a wonderful experience. We were located in a in in uh, in an area that was surrounded by small little German villages and towns, which is part of the idea when you want to put a boarding school. You don't want it. You yeah. don't want it in a city.
0: No, <laughs> or the obvious
1: teenage temptations, <laughs> and uh, it makes it easier. I still have many many fond memories. Uh, one among many. I just remember uh, a, a friend who was British but grew up in Spain, and he spoke, I don't know, four or five languages, but I remember still to this day where we would go off together talking about whatever topic uh, we had on our minds, and we would go for walks in the in the surrounding uh, woods, and then come out uh, in the um, orchard, small orchards. It was a beautiful part of the uh, Germany, and I just, it was just a, the kind of educational environment that's almost idyllic like you would have in a movie minus uh minus the, the 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 ubiquitous movie shots you know where somebody's getting murdered or or the staff are taking advantage of the kids none of that happened <laughs> uh it was really it was really nice it was very nice Brilliant. experience and and it, and of course then at that point i everything was in english but all my my the fellow students um, we're, we're kind of the same stage. We all spoke English more or less at varying degrees. Uh, and uh, but we often you'd hear several languages spoken in the hallway or or of course made up uh, uh, in boarding schools. You do that. You, you have this half English, half whatever other language you speak, you, may, you make it up. And uh, so, yeah, those those were good memories. And that's where I got a high school. An American slash Canadian high school education, which eventually allowed me to, when I came to the United States for college or university, um, I was able to, to totally fit in without any difficulty.
0: Hmm. So when did you move back to the States then?
1: I was 17 and a half and I, and I came back for university and I wound up uh, in California where my mother was from originally in the San Francisco Bay area, not in San Francisco, but in one of the um, smaller outlying towns um, uh, near the the low lying mountains here. And that was the 1980s at a time when it was known as Silicon Valley. Uh, The place was just booming. People were coming from all over the world. Uh, The computer industry was really starting to take off. There was work, people were happy. Life was good, (laughs) and uh, that's where I went to college. So I I stayed with my grandmother. The contact was my grandmother, and I rented a room from her in in her house.
0: So what did you major in?
1: I majored in uh, economics, economic theory. All right. Yeah, which looking back on it was not very useful. <laughs> 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 but I enjoyed it.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. So how, how long did you do in college then? Three years, you say? Uh
1: Yeah, the, the typical time, three to four years. Um, and then um, I came back, I think, to Europe for a year, worked here, taught as an English teacher in, in a French public school, and, um, and then went back to, to do two more years for a master's degree also in economics at the same school. So this is all in the San Jose, San Francisco area. I don't know if, if your listeners are that familiar. Most people, when they say where they're from the Bay Area, are really not from San Francisco at all. So all the economic activity is really happening outside of San Francisco, in my opinion. It's in this in the um, nicer looking suburban environments. That's where... yeah. All the all the um, um, all the economic activity is really happening. So, yeah.
0: so what did you do after college? Then, and then after started, college, yeah, you gone back and come. So, what yeah, did after you college, finished?
1: yeah, I worked. Uh, I did some various interesting things, but then I I started working for um a place that helped troubled youth. And uh, and that is kind of the beginning. So you get encouraged by the people around you uh, to pursue activities that don't always make sense for you personally in the long run. Not not that they're not that these activities are bad or inappropriate, but they don't quite they don't make sense in the larger scheme of things. So people have ideas, you know um, because I come from a background where a lot of people were involved in volunteer type organizations or if they weren't hundred percent volunteer, they were near hundred percent volunteer, but it makes it difficult later on if you want to have a family uh, to continue down that road. And so, if you start too soon in those areas you a lot of times you can wind up in a very difficult spot because you just want to you just want to get married and have a family but you have no money no experience in the area of making money and um and i see this a lot even today where people will may in university will major in these Mm -hmm. degrees that sound very heroic but at the end of the day it's like well what's your plan i mean uh, by definition Mm -hmm you're going to be involved in this activity where you can't put food on the table. So if you're going <laughs> to, if you're going to put food on the table, what's your plan? So it's not that you don't necessarily have to get involved. Right. But you don't want to wind up in the, it, it looks good in the movies. Somebody's devoted the life to helping a, 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 let's say a drug addicts. Yeah. It's great. You're helping the drug addicts, but how
0: Food <laughs> well, the drug the addicts table. are
1: living in your bedroom and you want to get married and there's no money and <laughs> how is that going to work out so people can burn out um not understand that dynamic between being able to give and help people and at the same time build up um a, a means of livelihood at the at the end of the day hmm. so my particular background, which I'm, 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 I had a, I had an amazing childhood, to be honest. And my parents were wonderful parents and they're still alive and I love them. And they're very, very giving people. Um, and so, and I knew a lot of other people like that, that uh, bent over backwards. But if you don't have a independent source of income for young men, it can be difficult. To continue down that road, and uh, without, so I got involved in in uh, helping troubled youth and so forth, but it notoriously pays very little money, and uh, and it doesn't set you up to then uh, have a career where you can support a family. <laughs> so I I ran into that, um, and uh, and at that time the tech boom was taking off. This was just pre two thousand. And mm-hmm. we decided. My wife, I was just newly married, and we realized this is this was a dead end. So um, we moved to another part of the states to Colorado, Colorado Springs. At that point in time, Colorado Springs was starting to really take off as a as a, um,
0: um, a tech boom. Was
1: it? Yeah, a tech boom. It was affecting. And so I, I got high. I didn't really have any. I mean, I did, I had normal computer skills like everybody was starting to have then. Just a get your job done, accounting done, so forth. But I really didn't have a focus or even a particular desire. But it so happened that one of the small dot com companies, as they called them back then, uh, needed a bilingual French English person in order to send to uh, do more marketing and uh, uh, customer support for their French speaking customers. And they um, and they decided that it was easier to find someone who was already bilingual and train them in their tech stuff than to take one of their technicians
0: and make <laughs> <them> bilingual. <laughs> yep. I guess that's so that's easier, what they did. Man, and actually,
1: I enjoyed it. That, that was mm. fun. And for the first time, I felt like I'm getting real money and I'm being paid to speak uh, another language that I speak fluently. Yeah. and uh and they and i remember when i was being hired i had that sort of the imposter syndrome where after the interview i could tell the people were like really it's like they wanted to hire me i was like this can't be real because elsewhere I had, <laughs> had knocked on no one wants you know what do you what do you do with the uh, what do you do with skills where you're helping troubled youth you know it's like okay yeah so, uh they wanted to hire me the next day and uh and they 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 paused dramatically and it's like well there is one glitch with this uh with this job. And I'm like, okay, here it comes. (laughs) (laughs) They said, you're going to have to be, uh, you're going to have to come in really early in order to meet the time demands of uh, of this other country. And I think I had to be in by five in the morning. I can't remember now what time was pretty early. Mm -hmm. And, but I got to have this magnificent view that normally executives get of the mountains just right in colorado springs there's a there's a big mm. mountain there where the sun comes in it was just magnificent i mean i think it was one of the happiest times uh, career-wise that i remember because i got in early before everybody else did um i still got to see everybody everybody looked up to me because i spoke another language fluently Everybody was willing to help train me. Money was flowing in those days. I mean, it was it was there yeah. was there was money flowing. I don't know how. Eventually that place w- which I left to go on to move uh, work with another tech company did go belly up like many of them did. Yeah. But the money was flowing then, and so we kind of ride that wave and that that allowed me to get out of the uh philanthropic uh volunteer mm. uh, work environment uh, that I needed to get out of in order to support a family. And so that that was a, a wonderful experience at that time. And since then, I have never been able to find or bump into a job where French was required. So <laughs> before, before other young people are listening to this, French is not very much an international language anymore. No. So even English French is want to speak the national language
0: of the world. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and as much as Macron wants the uh, EU to speak French, they're not going to yeah <laughs> english is too well established so they yeah. can do one <laughs> yeah so so, so what did all, you move on to then
1: well and then i worked for uh, a large uh, computer company uh, which make a long story short in in those days computer companies merged and bought each other out and so mm. uh eventually the company i was with became part of what they called Hewlett Packard, or HP for short, now, yeah. and it was one of those octopus tech companies that was buying and merging with everybody else. And um, there's so many different names, and and it's not even worth trying to keep track of it all. <laughs> and uh, and that also was actually a great experience. The the training that I received was very was in the heady days
0: <laughs> before mm-hmm. it went
1: down. Uh, a lot of other young men, and um, I enjoyed that. I did. But in that course of that, my wife and I decided that we wanted to homeschool, which is easy to do in the United States, from a, well, at least from a legal mm-hmm. perspective. And so we took advantage of that. I didn't have a personal memory of childhood in the United States because I didn't grow up here, even though I was an American. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't. it was easy for me to say, we're going to do things differently in my mind. Because I grew up in another culture where you know they they did things, and I wasn't I think by then i was I was unimpressed that uh, within each each educational system and this included the boarding school I went to the the teachers were not necessarily international like the students were, so in other words, yeah. most of them were were taken on because they were explicitly American or Canadian. So when they came over, they they only had that perspective on the educational system. And I remember a lot of times, you know, as, as, as teenagers also balking at the work that you have to do, it's yeah. quick to find out any any uh, weakness. <laughs> and I have teenagers now. <laughs> so they were very good at that, right? As children to point out any discrepancies or weaknesses. And it's like, why is this so important? Because you just came from another educational system where maybe they had the opposite view on it, right? And so you realize that a lot of times it's just busy work. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you'll, 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 you'll uh the French memorize the, king, you know, memorize the name of all the Kings, so to speak. And yeah. they, they, they do more than that. I don't want to exaggerate that, but it seems so important. Yeah. And you go to another culture and you're like, whatever, everybody's a King Louis. That's good <laughs> enough. And, uh, and you realize after a while, you realize you can't even bring this up in conversation. So what's the point? And, hmm. uh, and then, you know, the name of the rivers that seems so important, where you spend so much time being graded and memorizing hour after hour, unless you stay geographically in that very same area, it becomes singularly unimportant as soon as you move. <laughs> and you're just like, well, why spend so much energy uh, studying or memorizing this stuff? And at the end of the day, um, and even as parents, you, you become aware, some of it is, that's what you're doing. You're filling up, what else would these kids do, right? You're like, whatever. Yeah. Let them memorize all the tributaries <laughs> of this particular part of this obscure part of the country. Uh, because what else are you going to do? Are you really going to have hmm. them write their thoughts and essays? No, they don't have much to say. So, you know, okay, kids, we're going to spend the next you know few months memorizing hmm. whatever trivia knowledge. Um now they'll always argue each educational system, well, it, yes, it's true, some of it's trivia, but it's the principles we're teaching you. But you know what as mm. years go by, it's like no, I don't even buy that. I, <laughs> I think there are there are some uh, principles you can learn, but most of the time, Tim, I don't know if you've ever done that, where you watch a, a great uh, um, documentary uh, documentary or uh, historical analysis
0: yeah. on
1: some channel. And in six videos, you're thinking, oh, my goodness, this is way better than all the years of history that I had in college on this particular <laughs> topic. Uh, yeah. And you're like, it could have been done in, in one or two, three, and you don't forget that. Yeah. And you're like, that's a – All uh, that time. All that time. And, and I think that's exactly what it is. The teachers, you know, if they're a little more honest, you know, uh, my wife was a a, a, a school teacher in – before we got married and, and right in the beginning. And she says, yeah, honestly, that's what it is. You know, you maybe you have 20 students um, in your classroom and, and you have the list of approved uh, literature books you yeah. need to write. But the reality is you have three or four that are, that are very advanced and uh, they're actually tuning out because it's too easy for them. Uh, some of them in there can barely even read. So yeah. They're just, Damn. you know, they're just and, and, and then the middle ones are just sort of plagiarizing as much as they can <laughs> and You, as a teacher are trying to engage the students. Well, how much time yeah. do you have? Right. So you, you, you tend to avoid the yeah. type of analysis.
0: Type the that, issue, bro. right?
1: Right. That, that makes that that looks good yeah. on TV. It's like, yeah, yeah, but the reality is most students are not in that zone, but you still want you still want them to learn. So I don't want yeah. to be completely cynical. So really what you're putting out is always seems like a mediocre average. You can never really
0: yeah.
1: uh, dig in deep because either you lose, you know, two thirds behind yeah. you in the classroom or uh, the ones up front are sailing and then you're really losing where they're not gaining anything. Yeah. So there's that constant. Um, um, uh, what's the, the, the statistical term they use. That? It's a regression to the mean, you know, so you you can't let people go, get too good and you can't let people too bad. So you have this regression to the mean, at least that's your goal. I don't know if it's actually achievable, but that's kind of what your goal is. So you, you choose stuff and that over the years has really uh, influenced my thinking with regards to schooling with my own children.
0: Mm. And so, so that's what you did. You brought up your own kids uh, and homeschooled them and, how did they do?
1: They did great. they did yeah. really great and i I think that around when my son was twelve uh at that point in time, I still was working for a large corporation and i and i and I had the privilege back in those days even to work from home. so when I would take a little break, um my son came in he was around twelve at that time, and he's twenty four now so that's more than a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, in our in our local libraries, we could go and pick up books. And we typically, we at that point in time, we would also reserve them online. You could already do that then. And I told my son, "Hey, uh, you haven't read Sherlock Holmes yet. Uh those are fun to read. Uh, you got to read them." And and I said, "Go ahead." I said, "Go ahead and reserve them, and we'll pick them up next time we're there." So I'm so I'm gonna go make a coffee. So I went, came back with my cup of coffee. My son says, okay, I got them all. I said, great, we'll pick them all up. You'll enjoy them. He's like, no, dad. I have them all literally right here on my Kindle. And <laughs> and, uh, and it took me, I mean, I knew you could do this. This The the, yeah. rev- the Kindle revolution hadn't really started as far as like the eBooks and stuff. And make a long story short, I think within a week or two weeks, he had read all the Sherlock Holmes and, and I knew then this was a game changer. I think it was the, and I realized we're, we're screaming through the official literature.
0: Mm, that that school.
1: So I'm like, yeah. okay, now yeah. we're going to bump in to the kind of stupid literature. I'm more bold now <laughs> that we did in that we did in university. Right. And uh, I'll be a little bit harsh about that because there's just a lot of people who are teaching. who have got a lot of problems in their heads. And when they get, when they get to the university, I mean, it's wild. Uh, you're not doing, you're not really doing classical literature. It's, it's just a lot of people with a lot of stuff in their heads and they get, they, they're in charge now and you have to listen to them and they want you to write their essays. And frankly, and I won't mention the names of the books and stuff. Uh, but I'm like this, this is, I can't believe after all the education I have, um, I wouldn't have called myself an A student, but I will say that I had a very good education. I'm like, this is like reliving uh, junior high in France, uh, Mm -hmm. where they make you read uh, some of their pretty intense uh, authors, which really, when you get down to it, just very dark. And I don't know if Mm -hmm. you know French movies. So their idea of a a movie is if you can make it as dark as possible, where the hero dies in some... (laughs) <laughs> Not in a heroic fashion, but in some despicable uh then that's a with his head reason. cut off
0: the guillotine. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yes. It's very dark. And of yeah. course it's full of clever words and clever this and clever that. I get all that. I, I had already cycled through that in France. Mm. And then I'm like, okay, so now we get a different version uh with with bitter professors. <laughs> just spewing and you're forced to write essays, and you're all you're doing is trying to write an essay where you're hiding your contempt for uh, at least how, how I felt about it. <laughs> your contempt for even the books, books that you I would never pick up and read. Mm-hmm. and you, you you read it, and you, I get it, okay. this person can put together very unusual sh- and they're trying to shock you with their thoughts. you know it's very it's very mm-hmm. uh, it's just that mentality. And uh, there's no way I'd ever pick up a book like that, ever recommend it, ever walk away with any positive insight into life. Um, it's just you know what, if you want that, just turn on some dark movie, dark channel. And uh, and so it seems (laughs) like a lot of that university education is filled up with uh filler, um, you know, and and waste of time,
0: you mean, just waste of time, waste
1: waste of time. (laughs) and And it's and, you know, and people like to say, "Well, that one professor would change you know what again, movies, and uh, same yeah. thing. oh, we had these great convers- you know what the professors are so busy that you could you could barely talk to them. I mean, maybe you could get a hold of them to discuss a particular uh, question on the examination coming up, but you're not really hanging out with the professors. You're not having deep conversations. Mm-hmm. that's all fantasy. I, yeah. I didn't know anybody who had that. I mean, you <laughs> might have them with your with your uh, fellow students if you if you were if yeah. you were being careful to cultivate your relationships. But again, <laughs> you know, you're busy uh, with side jobs, or or uh, yeah. I have some friends that got caught up in the frat world. You know, they had a good time. But as far as academics and learning, at the end yeah, of the yeah. day, it was a very small amount. I mean, I did learn. I did learn. Mm-hmm. But when you when you look at the sum total of your work, you're just like, it, it's the eighty twenty rule. Eighty percent of it was trash. If it had not existed, yeah. I might have been better <laughs> for it. <laughs> but at the time, you don't know what it is. You know what is that twenty percent?
0: Oh, this is okay. I'm back. Yeah, this is this test us all the time.
1: No, you know what? I think it is when the, the browser has a different control uh, for the uh, uh, than I do with uh, Zoom. And so I, there's two levels of control that I, I, ah. once, I dis- once I disconnect, it wants to go to something else. So mm. my apologies on that.
0: No problem at all. Anyway, um, I think we'll just finish up. So thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: So the, I, the, the, the main thing that uh, this has done is that it's completely changed the educational uh, uh, method methodology that we've used on our kids that I have every intention of sharing with others. And so what we have done is uh, from an early age is we have helped the children to take uh, control of their educational path with our guidance in order for it to serve them. And uh, that may sound like that's what people do, Mm-hmm. But that is not what people do. What people, what you normally do is you have, especially in your teens, you have an educational bucket list, as people call that, that you try to fill yeah. up. And then eventually you try to find some approved <laughs> formal educational path um, that allows you to do some uh, customization of it. Well, we took a completely mm-hmm. different approach. We decided to look instead at some of the natural inclinations and abilities and started um, uh, building their education uh, around that. And especially with an idea of being able to uh, use it for the marketplace. So uh, a lot of times people have their interests split, you know, these are my interests, but they're Mm. disconnected to bringing value to other people. So what happens is at some point they have to abandon it entirely or go through a crisis or they pursue an education that does not quite make sense to their uh, overall aspirations. And so at an early age, we came up with a method that will work with uh, any type of personality. And um, And I had the luxury, of course, as a homeschooling father in California, because California, surprisingly, is one of the freest states um, to be able to do whatever you want with uh, homeschooling. Mm. Um, yeah, it's been like this for years. And um, I know some other states um, still struggle with some interference by the public schools. We don't have any of that. So Mm. uh, I decided to really modify the educational path so that it's more in tune with each child and where the child is actually taking more control uh, with my Mm -hmm. guidance. So they're not on their own where they're trying to pivot constantly in order to develop a skill set that integrates uh, their natural abilities, but also with their environment. And we have been very successful at that. So I have nine kids, five are out of the house already. They're young adults living on their own, pursuing careers that they really want to pursue and that they love. And that's because they started during their teens. And uh, it's as simple as whenever they wrote an essay, rather than doing, for example, a traditional curriculum requirement where they may ask you to do a three paragraph essay or or a persuasive yeah. essay we we would turn that around and say you can use the that methodology of teach uh, what they're teaching you but it's got to be about your long-term interest so everything was turned to basically creating a portfolio for what it is uh, that they gradually discovered was was their interest rather than allowing the curriculum and the curriculum was only a small part of it uh, mm-hmm. dictating to them uh, what, how much uh, they would do in that area. So yeah. that's, that's the overall um, turning your interest into a marketable skill at an early age is, is amazing. You get this a lot in the adult literature
0: mm-hmm. and a
1: lot of them would say at the end, at the end of the literature, if only I had started sooner. And so that put a bug at that. I started thinking, <laughs> well, why not start sooner?
0: That's and uh, yeah.
1: doing that transforms your children because mm-hmm. they, I, I often have to go to the kid's room and turn off the light and say, okay, it's time to turn off the lights <laughs> and get some sleep because they're so on fire uh, yeah. deep into what they're doing. Uh, it's so that the, the, their education and their schooling and their work and, their desires to make a living are integrated very deeply. And because they have that time before they leave the house, a lot of people will come to that realization. Oh shoot. Had I come up with a way to, you know, I, um, uh, I've known friends that love to surf, right? So they yeah. want to live the surfing lifestyle, but they can't figure out a way to make a living. So it all comes crashing to an end. You know, it's like, okay, I got to put my childhood away. So, what happens if you figured out a way to actually make a living with your surfing interest? Wouldn't that be amazing? But you have to start early enough to have that room to experiment hmm. uh with a way to bring value to other people. I think that's really missing in people where the the um the sense of confidence, the sense of purpose. The sense of well being comes actually from bringing value to other people, which then translates into making money off of it, at least to be able to support yourself with it.
0: Well, seems so like you've cracked it then.
1: Yeah, it just takes, a, it takes, a, it's difficult to get your mind around that because most parents uh, feel very, very naked trying to do something different than what everybody else is doing Mm -hmm. so they they panic they will say i will tell my children you're the building up your marketable talent is as important as your official schoolwork and so most parents will say well i i don't want to force them into it it's like you're not forcing them into it you're you're creating a space for them to be able to pursue it yeah. And I, I'll ask them. It's like, well, how do you feel about your child saying, "Hey, I don't want to do my, uh, I don't want to do my my English course this year, or I don't want to do my math course"? You say, "Well, that's not a choice. They need to do that because I want them to have options." And I guess that's the same thing. They don't see, they don't see the 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 long term talent that their child could get into as being something valuable. They see that as as something you you uh, accidentally fall into, but you don't treat the rest of your life like that. You don't. You mm-hmm. don't even treat your regular school work like that. You don't say, "Hey, little Johnny." Oh, <laughs> I guess you don't want to do uh, your English lit class this year. Ah, uh, you can skip out. He's like, yeah. I don't care if you feel like it or not. I hope you like it, but I might help you. But you're still going to do it. I yeah. take that approach with my kids. <laughs> I'll ask them, "Well, how much work did you put in this? The you know today or this week in developing the the talent that you love?" And if they say, "Well, none because I was playing video games," I'm like. Video games have to come down. I want to evidence that you have thrown yourself into the talent that you love in a way that brings value to other people. Because as a parent, you can be that person to bridge that gap between, you know, children wanting the, the, the end result, but not understanding the work that needs to be done in order to get to that. And so as a parent, you can coach them along that way. And and open up that uh, that mindset that usually a traditional school education does not do because you're waiting for the teacher to tell you you know the, okay mm. for the next three weeks we're going to spend we're going to spend time on World War II and then for the next week we're going to spend a, a week on World War One well, why not the other way around why not three weeks on World War One and and one week on <laughs> on World War Two there is no straightforward answer the point is is that there usually is an answer. If you're thinking in terms of your child, so they're Hmm. giving you the, they're giving you the format three weeks on world war two, one week on world war one, because it fits their goals, whatever their goals are uh, usually has to do with a group standard that they're trying to achieve. But is that achieving the goal that you want for your child? And at first, when you ask those questions, you're thinking there is no answer. That's Hmm. not true. There is an answer. Once you reverse engineer what the, what the goal is uh, that you want with your child. So uh, there always is an answer, but you have to wrestle with it a bit at first. And once you get it, it starts flowing.
0: Terrific. Anyway, I'm going to have to love you and leave you on this one. That's been fascinating.
1: All right. Thanks, Tim.
0: Thanks, Jonathan. That has been really, really enlightening. And good luck with it.
1: Thank you. God bless you.
0: The Tim Hill Podcasts Ordinary People's Extraordinary Stories Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcasts If you have the time You can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you.